I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, pain, injustice, failure, at one point or another, adversity hits us all. So are there some best practices when it comes to making the best of a bad lot? Talking to a friend who is describing something difficult in their life and immediately trying to give them advice or to prove to them that it was all going to be fine and realizing that these were forms of denial, a kind of refusal to acknowledge what they were actually going through and that just acknowledging that things are difficult is absolutely essential. And later, is there a cure for failure? Rethinking life successes and failures. The more we value the process of what we're doing, the less we're mortgaging our sources of meaning in life to success or failure. It's not going to mean that we succeed more, but it's going to mean that failure takes a different shape in our lives and has less centrality. What to do when times are tough. MIT philosopher Kieran Setia's guide to hardship and living well. That's coming up on Life Examined. The last two years have been tough on many people. But even without a pandemic, life has a way of tossing us curveballs, a job loss, an illness, or an injustice. Family and friends, mindfulness and meditation, can each offer relief. But sometimes a meaningful acknowledgement of our difficult reality can be of greater reassurance. Learning to navigate life's adversities might be a better skill than trying to bypass it altogether by seeking a temporary state of joy. Perhaps living well means living a life that is inclusive of hardship and pain. In his latest book called Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way, author Kieran Setia offers a thoughtful approach to what it means to live a meaningful life. The need to escape pain, loneliness, grief, or failure is universal, but are there other ways to process or describe those experiences that give them value? Is there a more constructive approach? Joining me now is Kieran Setia, professor of philosophy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and author of Midlife, A Philosophical Guide. His latest book, out next month, is titled Life is Hard. Well, Kieran Setia, welcome back to Life Examines. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. So I I was an undergraduate philosophy major at at Colby College out east, and I I was so excited about the degree, and yet the further I got into it and the way that I think it's studied at the university level is that I'm not sure I was actually getting answers to the questions I cared about, which is how to lead a good life. What is a moral life? What is a good life? Instead, I was stuck, I thought, more in abstractions and epistemology and, and things that just didn't resonate. I thought maybe I should have actually been a religious studies major or literature major. But I know this is a thing that you really wrestled with yourself, and I think it may bring us into why I think this is such a great and important book. So why don't you take it from there and see where we go? Absolutely. I mean, I I, I should say I, I have a real aversion to, to dissing philosophy because there's so much I love about the discipline. And even when philosophers write about how to live in the good life and do it abstractly, I think there's real value in that. But like you, I had a sense of a real distance between what I was doing as a philosopher, thinking about the question, how to live in my professional guise, and the kinds of conversations I was actually having with friends about how to live. So philosophers would ask these big questions about justice or altruism or what is a good life. But the questions I would ask with friends would almost always be of the form, I got this terrible diagnosis from my doctor, or my doctor, more commonly, my doctor doesn't know what's wrong with me. That turned yeah. out to be one of the, the most frequent. Or I moved to a new city and I just don't know how to make friends as a middle-aged person or you know my mother is sick and I felt like these were the kinds of questions about how to live that made up the conversations I was actually having and I wanted to connect philosophy as I understood it as an academic discipline with those practical down-to-earth down-to-earth questions and this really goes back to to grad school I remember when I took my my exams in grad school I I did well, but I don't remember anything nice the examiner said. What I remember is that the exam report said, this is all very interesting, but I'm not sure these these theories have been tested in the crucible of direct moral experience. And I remember at the time, my friends and I sort of sniggered at this somehow. We made fun of it as a a kind of silly response. But in fact, of course, one's philosophical ideas about how to live at some level must face up to the reality of one's experience. And there's a real challenge, I think, of bridging the gap between arguments and theories and the kind of sheer, focused, attentive description that makes up so much of actual moral reflection. 
Mm. Yeah, no, I, I I love that anecdote. It's something I remembered from the book, and it brings us into this uh, this greater project that you wrapped up, and even the the title of the book, "Life Is Hard," uh, strikes me as interesting as well. There's something to me that's almost very almost Buddhist in that when you think of, you know, one of the four noble truths that that there's an aspect of life which is going to contain suffering or hardships because uh, we are beings who will age, who will get sick, who will die. I, I wonder if that was something on your mind at all when you thought about a title like this. Absolutely. I mean, there's really two sides to this. One is that I, I it was part of my thinking that when someone this is an experience I describe in the book, and it, I describe it as the reader's experience, but not surprisingly, it happened to me, was talking to a friend who was describing something difficult in their life and immediately trying to give them advice or to prove to them that it was all going to be fine and realizing that these were forms of denial, forms of a kind of refusal to acknowledge what they were actually going through and that just acknowledging that things are difficult is absolutely essential. And they this sort of focus on the ways in which life is hard is also part of a kind of vision I have that's informed by a kind of question. What would philosophical reflection on the good life look like if it never lost contact with that reality? And the sort of tendency to focus on finding your bliss or living mm. your best life or the power of positive thinking, it has pop culture forms. But it also goes back to ancient Greek philosophy. So you look at Plato's Republic, which is about justice. But the form it takes is, here's a, here's a blueprint for utopia. It doesn't take the form of saying, how do we fight injustice in the world as we see it around us? Or Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics, his object of study is the ideal life, a kind of life free of deficiency and human need. And that's not a life that any of us I mean, unless we're very, very, very lucky, realistically thinks about. And so that there's a kind of detachment between a preoccupation with the best and our actual, the, the human condition, both in, in sort of pop culture slogans and in the philosophical tradition I was educated in. And so, yeah, the, the project of the book is to say, okay, let's never stop acknowledging that life is hard, not in a bleak way, but in a, I, I hope in the end, a constructive way, but try to approach the good life philosophically with attention to that, not some abstract theory. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I don't want to send us way off on tangents already, but it's just interesting to me, and we talk about this a lot in the show, how just so much of whether it's positive psychology or advances in technology and medicine are essentially trying to just smooth out all the rough edges or corners of life. We're, it seems to me, always trying to live in a some form of a painless, ever-extending, non-dying existence, which I find is kind of funny, but I think that's just, that's the direction that our culture seems to want to travel. I mean, the, yeah, the, absolutely. I mean, the extreme form of this is the some philosophers and then some tech billionaires who imagine who are imagining a future in which they'll somehow upload into machines and live this sort of simulated life entirely out of touch with reality mm. and that sort of brings into extreme focus the contrast between a contrast i i think is profoundly important between on the one hand feeling happy which is a, a kind of state of mind that is valuable in some ways and actually living well. And living well involves, it's not just a matter of happiness. And in fact, sometimes living well involves unhappiness. Like part of it is experiencing grief in a way that is painful, but nevertheless is part of being in touch with reality. And so I think, you know, a, 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 the lesson here, I think, is that we have to live in the world as it is. We can't live in the world as we wish it would be. We have to face reality in order to actually have good lives. And yeah, there's a, a kind of desire to flee from that, I think, that is is disturbing. There's something really powerful, right, in, in the acknowledgement of hardships and not in brushing it under the rug and pretending it doesn't exist. I, I, I just remember interviewing um, a, an amazing man named, named Adi Barkin. He was diagnosed with ALS and really could no longer move by the time I met him. And he had two young children. And he knew that he was probably going to die, but was spending his last final years fighting for climate justice and for health care in particular. And I remember asking him how he continued to do this. You know, just, just in the kind of 
incredible existential position he was in. And he said, acceptance is everything. Acceptance is everything in terms of understanding that diagnosis and then waking up and continuing to fight. And I, I wonder when we think about this hard life that acceptance is a big, a big aspect of this. Absolutely. I mean, that is an amazing story. And I, I think it, it's constantly surprising to me how much consolation I find and others find in simply acknowledging that things are difficult in not fleeing from them and basically in accepting them. And it seems it's not just that it's a sort of necessary condition of dealing with the world that you accept it for what it is, accept reality. It's also that there is a kind of profound feeling of satisfaction and consolation and connection with others in sort of sharing with them your acknowledgement of their reality and in that them sharing your acknowledgement of yours and that mm. that is something we we uh can't afford to to sort of overlook yeah just out of curiosity when we do think about the kind of the position of being humans and that the fact that we still get sick and that there is still violence and then you come across for example um psychologists like steven pinker who make the argument that this is still the best time to be alive and that there's less violence or disease or infant mortality now than ever before Do, are those arguments that you find are helpful or hold up at all well there are some aspects of technological and social progress that seem really amazing to me so uh, you know the advances in medicine, for instance, in anesthesia and you know medicines that understanding how germs work. Like the, the reduction in human suffering there is absolutely extraordinary, and I, I would not uh, have a, a negative thing to say about it. I think that there's a little bit of a sense for me that the people who feel this way, well, there's maybe two things. One is that, that it's a little bit like you know the chicken who's being fed and wakes up every morning thinking, yeah, this life is great, but mm. one day. Uh, the the axe is going to come. I mean, I think that the history is not necessarily one that's going to replicate indefinitely into the future. And part of that, this is the second point, is that you know when there's a the issue of climate change that you mentioned earlier is sort of brings out how much the technological growth that has made a positive difference to human well being did so in part by having all these negative externalities, just this incredible costs for the environment and for the human future that were not baked into the calculation. So there's a way in which our sense that, hey, there's this incredible progress uh, in, in sort of human civilization is a bit of an illusion because we're now seeing the, I don't know, I'm now going to mix my metaphors, the chickens come home to roost. What We're wow. seeing that the environmental and human costs of that that were basically uh, ignored for, you know, since the Industrial Revolution have to be paid at some point. And so I, I think, yeah, you can look at the past and tell us a narrative of progress. I mean, there's colonialism and there's uh, racism and there's slavery and there's an enormous amount to be unhappy about and to be to be mm. angry about too. But even if you tell that story of, of progress, I don't think it's a story that you could reasonably predict is going to continue painlessly into the future. No, I think that is a, a, a profound point and moral conundrum, this idea that in some ways our lives are more free of illness, although it's strange to say that coming out of a pandemic in which millions have died. Right, right. But, um, and, and that in many ways, the, the quality or standard of life is higher, depending where you live, let's say, in an in industrialized part of the West. And yet, those have created uh, the causes and conditions in which climate change is now forced upon us. And if you were in California over, you know, the last month or so, you were living in the hottest temperatures of your life, most likely. So um, that's a serious point to reckon with. I, I, I wonder if you have any other thoughts on that to think through. Well, I, I mean, this is something I, I grapple with in my own experience at MIT, which is an institution that is sort of built around a certain kind of technocratic approach to the world and is very invested in its entire ethos and sort of appeal to the outside world in the idea that what MIT will contribute is new technologies and new technologies will solve our problems. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of the, the challenge at MIT that I think the the institution has not really grappled with is the way in which its organization and its money are entangled with, say, fossil fuel companies. So there's a right. there's a way in which MIT is developing genuinely amazing 
new green technologies, but it's also taking a huge amount of research money from fossil fuel companies and has an endowment that is, let's just say, not divested from fossil fuels. So Uh there's a kind of, uh, it for me is sort of the paradigm of this, of the, the conundrum you're describing, that it's not that we want to throw away these technological advances, and we may, I mean, we will need them. But there is a question about how to really seriously reckon with the uh, how to seriously reckon with the past and the way in which, for instance, fossil fuel companies have been involved in climate denial and have mm. been sort of anti-science in some of their their sort of public posturing. And yeah, that that for me is sort of where the the the, the challenge you're describing really really hits home. Well, the joy of speaking to you is we could talk about anything and it would be interesting, but we, I really want to get to your book. And, um, and this is all, I think, in some ways intertwined because these are big philosophical questions. But, but you lay out some just wonderful chapters uh, thematically, and uh, I, I want to start to get into some of them. I mean, just for example, infirmity, failure, injustice, absurdity. And I want to start with the first, infirmity, because you tell a story of of living in at times quite severe pain yourself and and there's a line that comes to me and you, you can tell me if this is wrong or not but i remember reading it as an undergraduate reading nietzsche and he said something along the lines of you know there's there's two realities um or ways of seeing the world that of the healthy and that of the sick and it, it was a line of something like that that always really stayed with me because who hasn't had the experience of being ill and the whole world appears enveloped in illness or the, the lenses we wear feel shaped by illness. But I, I want to hear really about your story and how that kind of frames this chapter. Yeah, so this this is personal for me, and I, I sort of both wanted to work through my own experience and raise awareness and say something that might be of universal interest. I mean, what happened to me was around the age of 27, uh, I started, I suddenly started experiencing, well, what it felt like initially was like I needed to go to the bathroom and then I went to the bathroom and peed and then I still needed to go to the bathroom. Like the, yeah. There was a sort of sensation that seemed completely disconnected from my actual bodily functioning. And, you know, my doctor thought it was a urinary tract infection. We ruled that out. They did a bunch of tests. You know, there was a this apparently teenage urologist like used an old-fashioned cystoscope like a like a telescopic radio antenna to investigate what was going on in, in the mm-hmm. my urethra and in my bladder mm-hmm. couldn't find anything and then i kind of bounced around as people do with these kinds of chronic conditions from urologist to urologist various kind of false leads and i mean this goes back to acknowledgement the urologist i have now who i really like the reason i like him was that he said yeah we have a name for this, chronic pelvic pain. It's not well understood. There is no reliable treatment. We can try some things, but uh, this is the situation. And to be honest, that kind of acknowledgement was incredibly helpful, even though it was of, of no, in terms of treatment, was of no value whatsoever. So yeah, I basically yeah. have a kind of pain condition that that is, you know, it, it, it varies, it flares up sometimes, other times it's mild. Sometimes it's bad enough that I just cannot sleep at all. Other times... I go through the day for a few hours and think I go through the day for a few hours and, and just don't really think about it. So it but it does give you a kind of window on uh human suffering that well it gave me a window on human suffering I didn't have before. I mean one example of that is sometimes I have this sense of sort of looking at someone else across a room and my first thought is you're not experiencing pain right now. Like what is that like? And then my second thought is how do I know what you're experiencing? Like for for all I know, you are experiencing pain right now. I mean, th- this is the right. the con- nature of sort of invisible forms of chronic illness is that anyone we're in- interacting with at any point in the day could be going through difficulties we're completely unaware of. Mm. Yeah, and maybe you can say more about what we know about the experience of living in pain. Or I mean, you can even speak from the first person here. I mean, h- how different life feels when you're in the grips of pain? I, w- I mean, I would say that here here, there's a kind of tradition of, of thinking in phenomenology, the sort of part of philosophy or the kind of style of philosophy that investigates the nature of human experience, tries to describe experience sort of in its own terms that I found really helpful. One way to sort of bring out the, the, the distinctive character of it for me is that very often when you're not in pain, your experience of your own body is 
as you might put it, transparent. Like you don't even really notice that you have yeah. a body. It's as if you're, you know, you're directly interacting with objects in the world or other people who are talking to you. And you sort of experience through your body, but the body itself, is, it sort of feels invisible. It's barely even there. And a feature of pain and, and sort of intense bodily sensations is that they disrupt that. Like they draw attention to your body. And so your experience of really everything in the world, other people, but even just objects you're interacting with or what you're doing in your life becomes effortful and mediated. And so I, I think in a way, you know, one thing that's bad about pain is that it's painful. And that, in a way, sort of goes without saying. But really, I think that there's this other dimension to it, which is that pain sort of interferes with one's capacity to experience good things. It, it interferes with one's capacity to experience the world unobstructed. And I, understanding that was very helpful to me in trying to figure out why I'm finding it so difficult, given that often, you know, the pain I'm experiencing is not preventing me from engaging in in sort of ordinary daily activities altogether, but it does change how you experience them. Hmm. That idea of the the kind of the translucent body is such an interesting one to me. You're right. I mean, for those that are lucky enough to wake up and not have bodily pain, you kind of end up just forgetting about the body. And then when one little thing goes wrong, you begin to fixate on it nonstop and it becomes the sole object of your attention. And it's just, it's it's true. The body is, is either not there or it seems to get in the way, one or the other, right? No, absolutely. I mean, and, and there's a kind of irony here, which is that people probably have some version of this experience. Almost everyone does. Like when, when I used to have a cold, I would say to myself, this sucks. Every day I wake mm -hmm. up without a cold, I should really appreciate it. Yes. And then I would wake up without a cold. And did I appreciate it? No, I did not appreciate it. Because at that point, the obstruction is gone and you can't, sense the absence of the obstruction. And there's something similar with pain. Right? I, I'll go through periods where I, I'll be like, I haven't noticed it for a while, but I will have completely failed to appreciate it because what will have happened in that period is just that I'm not really aware. I go back to not being very aware of my body. So there's this funny respect in which when you're in pain, you really want to be pain-free. But actually being pain-free is very, very hard to appreciate properly because it, it just, there's nothing to it. It sort of, it, it vanishes when you try to, try to, focus on it. And well, again, I find that kind of, of reflection, sort of understanding my situation helpful, even though it's not a kind of, it doesn't offer a specific treatment plan, but it does, I think, help me to kind of relate to what I'm feeling differently, to realize that, you know, that, that I'm, I'm in a way missing less than I think I'm missing. Mm. This to me also, I think, brings up a really tricky aspect of, of human psychology, which is why it's so hard to, in a sense, just have those sheer moments of gratitude or of being thankful that one is not in pain. I, you know, I remember, for example, growing up, you know, similar, but not the same. Like, my mother would always use this example of, you should all be grateful because you're not starving in Africa and we have, we, you know, we have food on the table. At, and, and But the point I understood, but it didn't exactly land. It was hard for me to, you know have that form of empathy or gratitude kind of out of nowhere. And it just shows to me that the human brain ha struggles with this on some level of remembering what it's like to be in pain when you haven't been in pain for a while or to remember certain aspects of suffering that you're not in direct contact with. Do you find that's true as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is. A, I, I haven't done this directly myself, but there are kind of forms of, of sort of therapeutic treatment in which the idea of gratitude is made concrete and that you you sort of list things you're grateful for and try to like mindfully pay attention to the good right. things that otherwise just sort of vanish in being taken for granted. I mean, the other part of this is I think just as it's easy to forget how unpleasant it was to be in pain when you're not. I think the other aspect of chronic pain, the experience of chronic pain that is interesting and challenging is that it can make it hard to for, remember what it was like to be pain-free mm -hmm. and hard to project into a, a future where you're pain-free. And there, I think there is something practical to say. I mean, I, I think one of the ways I think about the experience is that actually going through an hour or a day of the kind of pain I experience is fine. Mm. If I had a day like that, I would, it would just not be a big deal. The problem is that it's every day. But of course, it's also just one day at a time. And so there's a kind of shift in which the more you can detach from the anxiety about what the pain will be in the future and not worry about its sort of temporal dimension, the better. There's this line from, from the 
uh, from Kimmy Schmidt in the in the sitcom, where you know Kimmy Schmidt has been uh, sort of confined in a bunker for fifteen years, and her mantra is, "You can stand anything for ten seconds." And I think mm. there's something deeply right about that. I think mean, my my time scale is not ten seconds; it's more like a day or a week. But the thought, my life is made up of finite units. And each finite unit is such that the, the sort of balance in it is all right. Mm-hmm. And if I could just experience it that way, I would be equipped to cope with pain much more effectively. And I think that's something that applies not just to chronic pain, but to any pain of uncertain duration. Anytime you're in pain and you're not sure when it's going to end, the thought, well, can I survive this? Is it, Can I not just survive it, but do things that seem worthwhile and have a pretty decent life for an hour? Okay, well, it's just one hour after another. And I think that way of reframing things is genuinely sort of therapeutically helpful. Yeah, I agree. And it's also, though, interesting, I think, how often, for example, you can replace uh, physical pain then with a new type of mental pain, right? So you, you can get your tooth fixed and you're out of pain, but then you can then replace that pain with the anxiety about how you're going to pay for the tooth that was just fixed, which this is what happens, I know, like to me all the time. I get out uh-huh. of pain, but then <laughs> I just go off to the next worry. You know what I mean? It's like the brain really likes to kind of stay in that mode when really, what what should I be doing? I should maybe sit down and breathe and meditate and yeah. find those little moments of actual peace, right? <laughs> Absolutely right. No, I do think this is a place where one of the ways in which mindfulness meditation really helps is that it, you know, whatever else it's doing, it's enabling you to focus on what's happening now and detach from anxiety about the future. And carrying that attitude into your life is is very liberating. And I think precisely for the kinds of anxieties that you are subject to, which, believe me, I, I recognize. My guest is Kieran Setia, philosophy professor at MIT. We'll be back with part two after this short break. You're listening to Life Examined. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Kieran Setia share his own experience with chronic pain and the window it gave him into human suffering. Setia explains his own approach to gratitude and appreciation and how that impacts the way he experiences normal day-to-day activities. We rejoin the conversation after I asked Setia about some of the other chapters in his book that particularly resonated with him. Well, it, in terms of personal resonance, the place to start is is grief, and it, it's complicated. So no one who I'm really close to in my life has died. People who are in my life have died, and it's been hard in some ways. My father-in-law actually died while I was writing the book, and I talk about that in the chapter. For me, the 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 case where this is sort of complicated and difficult is my, my mother has Alzheimer's, and she is alive, and she is physically well, actually, physically doing okay, yeah. but increasingly just isn't really able to interact. I mean, isn't really able to speak or recognize people she used to be close to. And that that is a, there's a kind of complicated grief phenomenon there where on the one hand, uh, I'm sort of starting to begin a kind of process of grieving, but it's it doesn't. It's not clear how it relates to to her life because she she may not die for many years, and that that for me is a kind of uh, the the personal challenge that that makes thinking about grief kind of both difficult and and urgent. And you know, one of the the there's a really amazing book by Annie Ernaux, um called "I Remain in Darkness," which is about her mother and. Uh, her mother, you know, died, and she traces some of the kind of physical indignities her mother went through. And reading that is, again, very painful, but a kind of acknowledgement that I find helpful of of what this might look like. And it does sort of bring out these deep conflicts between 
wanting what's the best for someone you love and just wanting them to be alive. Because at a certain point, you know, Annie Ono's mother is in sufficiently bad shape that for her own sake, for her sake, uh, Ono is sort of thinking, I think, you know, this the time has come for this to end, but she nevertheless can't let go. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things about grief is that it is complicated in that way. It isn't a kind of simple emotion. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, as as a therapist who's, who's done grief counseling work, I think one of the many interesting aspects of grief is that um, on one level, grieving someone is is a way to keep them alive, right? It's, it's, it's this idea that their presence is still with you, even though they may physically no longer be with you. And so people will cling to it and hold to it. There's this, you quote Joan Didion, but there's this famous line in the Year of Magical Thinking where it's something like, you know, every day I would cross the street and I would think about my husband that had died. But then there was this one day that I crossed it and I didn't think about my husband. And I felt so guilty because right. that was the moment I realized I was really beginning to move on and not just forget him, but but kind of move through the grief to a new place. And I always found that anecdote to be particularly poignant. Does that, does that resonate yeah, with you yeah, too? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think that there's, there's sort of a, a guilt about ceasing to grieve that also yeah. adds its own layer of complications. I mean, th- there's a, a kind of nice vocabulary that the, the American philosopher Samuel Scheffler has for describing relationships that are, as it were, no longer active. He says, some mm. relationships are completed, namely, meaning you don't really interact with the person anymore, but they're still out there and alive. And then there are relationships where someone dies which he calls archived relationships and part of the idea of the, the the sort of archived relationship which which i like is that it sort of emphasizes that the relationship has changed status but it's not over that the relationship continues and that you know grieving involves a change negotiating a kind of change in a relationship but not an end and that in a way is part of the challenge is thinking well i i have to accept the change if i keep fighting the change i'm I'm not going to get through this. On the other hand, I don't want to just say the relationship is over. I don't want to say, well, that's that's done with, forget it. And so mm-hmm. you have to sort of invent a new kind of relationship that is different from the kind of relationship you would have with someone who's still alive, but is still an ongoing relationship. And I think that sort of recognizing that you're doing that and that you still have that relationship it helps to overcome that sense of guilt. So, you know, when, when I said my, my father-in-law died during the, the pandemic, not not of COVID, but of a, it seems to have been a, a kind of sudden heart attack. And one thing that uh, my wife, which we went to, we had a kind of Zoom memorial, and he had friends from all kinds of places in his life and times in his life. And I think we had known that he was good at keeping up with friends. I think the extent mm. to which he did that was not something we were fully aware of, and it was incredibly moving. And one thing that my wife did afterwards, I mean, she had, it was hard because, you know, it didn't seem real. It happened when he was far away. It wasn't in person. But one thing she did to try to kind of acknowledge this was to try and keep in better touch with her own friends, to sort of think a, a way to remember him in my life is to think of him as reminding me to stay in touch with people. And that's been a good thing in her life and also a way of feeling like she remains connected with him. And so I think people are doing that all the time. They're finding ways to continue to change their own life after someone important to them dies that some way register the relationship with that person and the nature of that person and the meaning of that person and the being of that person. And uh, that that is a sort of attempt to, to, to thread this needle that sort of go between the the wanting the relationship to remain as it was and just letting go of it. Yeah, I, I remember I once had a um, you know a, a supervisor training when I was training in, in psychotherapy, and and we were talking about grief. And one of the great questions to ask someone in grief that had just lost someone's lost someone was, you know, what are what are some of the characteristics or attributes of that person that you want to bring with you into your own life? Yeah. What 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 parts of them are you going to carry with you? And I found that to always be a very affirming question that got I think to the heart of how one can grieve in a way that feels meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back in a way to gratitude. I mean, mm-hmm. it's sort of finding a way to recognize what was amazing about the person and to, to sort of if you can find it, not everyone will find this so easy depending on what kind of relationship 
they had with someone in their life who died. But if you can find a way to be grateful for those things, then that that seems like it's it's only good. It's only a, a good way of honoring that person's life. Yeah. Well, along with the chapter of of grief, you also talk about loneliness, which I which I really appreciate. I remember we had on um the the more kind of popular philosopher and psychologist Alan de Botton who was talking about love but he he made this really i think beautiful vulnerable statement which he said you know what if i'm really honest with you this is a person who gives you know tours internationally best selling author he goes i'm a pretty lonely person and ultimately that's that's just who i feel that i am and it it's hard to kind of escape out of that and i think we all as you know single solitary humans have to experience this emotion one moment or another. So talk to me about loneliness and why you think philosophy is helpful and, and how this resonates again, I think, with what you've gone through. Yeah, well, so I, I it was funny writing about this because I, I sort of before, I started writing the book before the pandemic, and I was reading a lot of history and sociology that sort of debunked the idea that lo- there was a kind of epidemic of loneliness. So there was a lot of talk yeah. about loneliness being epidemic, but you know, a lot of the, the studies that are often cited, then you know, they turn out to have flaws in them and aren't really replicable, or you know, the historical narrative seems skewed. So I was all gearing up to say, yeah, this problem is overblown. And then, of course, the pandemic hit, and <laughs> suddenly I, it seemed obviously a kind of incredibly widespread problem that suddenly people were dealing with social isolation at a scale that was uh in certainly in my lifetime completely unprecedented yeah and yeah so for me i think i i think of myself as someone who's quite there's sort of a distinction between being you know alone or solitary and being lonely where loneliness is sort of the 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 suffering that comes from that when your social needs are not met. And in fact, your social needs could be frustrated even when you're with other people. For me, I think of myself as kind of a loner, but not someone who is that lonely. But when the pandemic hit, like everyone, I I felt like, okay, this is a a challenge. I was at home with my wife and my kid. It could have been a lot worse. I know people who who were living alone or dealing with dependents or in, you know, difficult relationships. But uh, yeah, so one thing that I actually did was, um, I, and I was not alone. This seemed to be what everyone was doing. And like the, the number of podcasts that were started in you know April 2020 must have been some kind of incredible spike. But yeah, I started a, a podcast where I, I talked to other philosophers about themselves. And part of the idea of it was that it wasn't, it's not really about the nitty gritty of philosophy. It's about talking to them as people, like why are they doing this? How does it? Re- how does philosophy fit into their lives? Asking them personal questions that I might ask them at a dinner after a talk, but wouldn't ask yeah. in a professional setting, and that was really great. And I think it did teach me something, which was, you know, lots of these people were not friends and weren't going to become friends, but that just being in a social situation where I have structured questions, so minimal social anxiety. And then I just have to listen. I have to actually pay attention to someone. It was sort of scratching the itch. It was it was sort of filling this social need that I had. And I think that the the social science around loneliness, sort of, and the philosophy that that sort of I I, I ended up thinking through really sort of fits with that interpretation. And what I find is, as somebody that that has the joy of being able to do this every week, is it, it's incredible when you create the environment or context in which someone is invited in to be listened to, which is just such a rarity. Just just knowing that somebody is really going to be paying attention to every word you say, and how that opens the door to incredible vulnerability. And you know, you and I have never met in person. But I feel like whatever the space is that we create together is one that allows a freedom of expression and of, of kindness and empathy and of the sharing of ideas. And it doesn't have to be in a podcast, but I think it's the intention and the space that you create to allow for that to happen, which is, I think, one of the great anecdotes to loneliness. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I mean, you're... I, I, you're very good at it, and I, I kind of I, I I love this kind of conversational experience with you. And a big part of that is precisely that I'm listening to you, and you're listening to me. And I, you know, I think there's a a tendency. Whatever relationship we have, it's not like the kind when someone says I'm lonely, I want to have friends. 
this is probably not what they think of. But I think in a way, there's just a continuum here and that we shouldn't think of, of sort of deep friendship as some radically other thing mm. on a completely different sort of register than just paying attention to someone else and listening to them and and sort of uh, giving them your your uh, acknowledgement. And so I, I think this, it's really that sense that someone else is acknowledging your reality and taking you seriously and that you really exist in their eyes and that you can give that to them. That's not the same as having a close friendship, but it's in the same it's in the same ballpark it's the same kind of thing and so i mean this fits again with both a kind of philosophical view on which what friendship and love are, are about is just about acknowledging the irreplaceable value of another human being which is the same thing we acknowledge when we treat them with moral decency but it also fits with the psychology and so you know psychologists like john cacioppo who wrote a book about loneliness say you know, the way to get out of loneliness is is to stop worrying about the friendship you, you might have with someone or whether they're reciprocating and just start by paying attention to someone else. And that exactly fits what you would predict given the kind of philosophical model of friendship and love as forms of acknowledgement and appreciation of just the value of another person. And that's what's happening when people have a genuine, attentive conversation, even if it's a, a one-off. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting how I find that we think that doing this is going to require so much work, we're almost avoidant of it. Where, I think you're alluding to this, that that it, yeah, it takes some work, but it's kind of built into who we are. This is stuff that we can do, not just with our loved ones, but with someone we sit next to on the train or someone who's serving you a drink. I mean, um, it, it's it's a powerful, simple thing that I, I wish we could harness more, you know? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it can seem sort of disappointing and pathetic to say, well, just have a conversation with someone in the, line, in the checkout lane mm-hmm. at the grocery store. But that is something and you know there are these uh, the there's a there was a study of uh in of i think in chicago in which people were asked to just find a stranger ask them a question find out something about themselves tell them something about yourself and mm. a people found it although they were reluctant they found it surprisingly easy to do in the end and got rebuffed very rarely and they felt like even though it was a one off interaction it was sort of socially affirming. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's easier than it seems. Well, let's talk about two more chapters that we have time for. And um, they may seem kind of uh, polar opposites, but we'll we'll end, we'll go to one and pivot to the other. The first is, is something that we've all experienced, which is failure. And how one reckons with failure, how we understand it, what we learn from it. Um, So tell me a little bit about the philosophical underpinnings of this and why it was important for you. Well, this is a case where I think, you know, there isn't going to be a magic cure to failure. It's not like, this this is not a book that says, you know, here's how you can succeed without even trying it. I'm not a, I'm not that kind of snake oil salesman. But what I do think is, is interesting philosophically about failure is that there are ways of thinking about our own lives and our own activities that set us set us up for failure. That actually amplify the risk and the 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 sort of scale of failure. So one of these is that there's a kind of uh, a tendency to think of one's life in narrative terms. In fact, you know, often we're told, you know, think of yourself as a storyteller, and you know, you are the protagonist of your own life. And there's a real danger to thinking that way. I mean, if you think of yourself as the narrator of your life, and you think in terms of sort of linear narrative where there's a kind of crisis and a problem and there's some thing you need to achieve and that's the defining shape of your life then that is risky i mean if you achieve it great if you don't not great but actually uh, sort of understanding yourself and making sense of your life doesn't require you to think in narrative terms certainly doesn't require you to think in terms of linear narrative so i think one kind of way we can reframe our understanding of our own lives to resist the the idea that we are either going to be failures or successes you know winners or losers is to under think of ourselves as not defined by any one central activity or project or enterprise 
but as having many things in our lives, as all, as we always do. But we, we can sort of forget that or, or, or sort of want to identify ourselves as one thing. And there's a kind of historical story about this that has to do with the ways in which, for instance, financial success comes to be sort of identity defining in the in the mid 19th century that I think is also part of the the historical story. And, and the other thing to say is that even how we think of our activities can be reframed. So we often think in terms of projects or completable activities that aim at something that we'll either achieve or we won't. But actually, there's a kind of key distinction here between what I call telic activities, the aim at a telos, which is the, the Greek word for end, where you finish them. So it might be getting a promotion at work or getting a new job or having kids. And atelic activities, which don't have that kind of end state, it could just be talking to people about interesting topics as opposed to recording this episode or uh, you know, parenting as opposed to getting your kids to school on time. And the more we focus on the projects, the more we're going to end up with a tally of failures and successes. The more we value the process of what we're doing, the less we're mortgaging our sources of meaning in life to success or failure. And so I think in both of those ways, sort of resisting linear narrative and resisting the sort of project-driven framing of life, we can push back against how we think about our lives so that it's not going to mean that we succeed more, but it's going to mean that failure takes a different shape in our lives and has less centrality in how we understand the significance of our own lives. Yeah, I'm very struck by that idea of the linear narrative, and and you just used the word the centrality. So the centrality of failure. I mean, speaking personally, I just got out of a, a, a six year relationship, and it was so interesting how the word that comes to mind first is it was a failed relationship. That's often how we use the term in relationship. It was failed. You either succeeded by staying with, or you failed by getting out. And it only took friends that kind of looked at me and said, why is that even the word that comes to your mind when you would apply it to something like that? That's actually not even the way in which one should understand relationships or projects. You're creating limitations or a much narrow view on your own self and the relationship than what it really was, which was an opportunity to grow and love and learn. But it just reminds me again of that centrality that you're talking about that I think can be kind of toxic in our culture. Yeah, and that's a really interesting case because, again, yeah, you take something that's about the ongoing process of being with someone and then reframe it as something that has to have a certain outcome. And suddenly it seems like, oh, well, I failed, as if it was about success to begin, sort of success or failure to begin with. No, I I think that's totally right. Hmm. Well, finally, you end, I think, on, you know, a, a very, well, hopeful way, about a hopeful last chapter, because it's it's about hope. And I thought, why don't we just share a few minutes on that topic as we as we close out our time together? So tell me a little bit about why hope factors into this book. Well, this, absolutely. I mean, th- this, was a, this was an interesting one for me in part because I'm very ambivalent about hope. I, mm. I kind of... My first reaction when people talk about hope is to think of someone just sort of sitting back and hoping for the best and a kind of passivity and a kind of lack of agency. And it has sort of bad connotations for me. And so I, I sort of wanted to deal with hope as one of the hardships of life. And in fact, thinking of hope in this negative way has a long history. So you go back to the Greek poet Hesiod and the, mm. the myth of Pandora's box. Hesiod we we often think, ah, oh, yes, Pandora's box is opened, releasing the ills of life, but at least she keeps hope. But actually, that hasn't, wasn't how Hesiod was thinking of it. He was thinking of hope as one of the ills, like it, it makes you idle and lazy. Huh. Uh, although it's very puzzling because then, well, if it's kept in the box, does that mean we don't have hope? No one can really make sense of it. And I think what was clarifying for me was to draw a really sharp distinction that actually comes from from the medieval theologian and philosopher Aquinas, between hope as a state of mind, where you're just hoping for something, which can be completely passive, may or may not be good, in itself, not something to be particularly prized, and the virtue of hope. And so for Aquinas, the virtue of hope is a sort of theological virtue. It's about the keeping sort of the, it's about the aspiration to eternal life. And that's not how I'm thinking about it in my secular way. But I do think 
the right thing to focus on here is the virtue of relating to hope in the right way. That's to say, not giving up hope too easily and not grasping at hope when it's mere wishful thinking. And that virtue, like the, in a way, this I, I think the question, reframing the question helps. It's it's not about whether hope is good or whether we should hope. We're going to hope for things and we need to. It's about what we should hope for. And there I think that the sort of reframed question is not only more accurate, it's also more helpful. Because when you ask yourself, what should I hope for? There's always something. There's always some path for hope to take. So, you know, I think of climate change as something we, you know, again, we talked earlier about the the sort of the threat of climate change sort of looming yeah. over us. And I think it's hard, it's easy to feel hopeless about it. But actually, when you think, hold on, what should I hope for? The answer is, this is not all or nothing. This is a problem that literally comes by degrees. So mm-hmm. whenever you think, well, we may not keep global warming below 1.5 degrees, you can't give up hope. You just think, well, what should I hope for? Well, how about 1.6? How about 1.7? And so that way of thinking about hope makes clear that, that we can always find it and that once we've found it, then the the next step is to remember that hope is not the end point, that the, the state of hoping can be passive. It's once you've found what to hope for, then you really have to do something about it. And once you know what to hope for, then you have to remember that the state of hope is not the end point. It's, it's a kind of necessary stepping stone, but there is this further thing of actually doing something and you know we can't we can't forget that you know there's a, a a wonderful quote by Greta Thunberg talking I think she was addressing the World Economic Forum at Davos where she says I don't want you to be hopeful I want you to panic and there's something right about that although we need hope or that we don't have anywhere to go but we have to remember to act on it not to let hopefulness be a, a kind of resting place. I've been speaking with Kieran Setia, professor of philosophy at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the author most recently of Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. Kieran, thank you so much again for joining us on this program and and for sharing some of your life and ideas with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. We always enjoy reading your comments. We want you to be a part of our community, and we welcome all newcomers to the show. So if you want to chime in on dealing with hardship or ways that you've learned to cope with difficult times in your life, and maybe tell us about some of your favorite authors or ideas, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined, or by searching in Facebook for KCRW Life Examined. And before I go, a big thank you to all of you who supported Life Examined during our KCRW pledge drive. It means a lot. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful day. We'll see you next week.